0: From the Moan Broadcast Center, it's Air Talk on 89.3 KBCC. I'm Libby Denkman, in for Larry Mantle. Portland protesters and the city's mayor can agree on one thing. They say federal law enforcement officers have no place on the streets of Oregon's largest city. We'll have more on what is happening in Portland and the constitutional issues being raised there. Plus, a check-in on voting rights now that Congressman John Lewis, a giant of the civil rights movement, has passed. What to know ahead of the 2020 election? That's all coming up on Air Talk. Stay with us. Good morning and welcome to Air Talk on 89.3 KBCC. I'm not Larry Mantle. Larry is on vacation this week and I'm really happy to be here with you. Thanks for sticking with us while Larry is away. First up, let's go to Portland, Oregon, where federal law enforcement agents sent by the Trump administration have been using tear gas and pulling people into unmarked vehicles to break up nightly protests against police violence the Portland mayor says he doesn't want the feds involved and House Democrats are demanding an investigation. That city has become the center of a growing conversation about the use of tactical units from Customs and Border Protection and other agencies to protect federal buildings and police officers. Department of Homeland Security Acting Deputy Secretary Ken Cuccinelli dismissed concerns this morning, saying the tactics were so common they're barely worth discussing. So we want to go deeper on this issue, but first we have a special guest on the line, and I know that he's got limited time, so we're going to start with him. Chris David joins me now. He's a former Navy officer and a Portland resident. And if you were on social media over the weekend, you probably know Chris. He's the protester in the Navy sweatshirt who was beaten by federal law enforcement and then pepper sprayed. And a video of that incident, including the uh, gesture that he made as he walked away from the federal law enforcement, went viral yesterday yesterday. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much for making the time. I know it's been a busy uh, 24 hours.
1: Yeah, it's been a little crazy, but good morning <laughs> anyway.
0: Yeah, well, welcome. And first off, I just want to ask, what is uh, your reason for, for showing up on Saturday night at the protest? I understand this wasn't normal for you to be out, um, you no, know, protesting. My
1: first protest. Um I hadn't been going, although I probably should have gone before now. But the triggering event for me was seeing the video of these. I don't know what they are. They call them little green men, but the 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 men walking around in, in military fatigues with no insignia, abducting people off the streets of Portland and putting them into unmarked vans. Could um, that outraged me. I was enraged when I saw that. And that's actually sort of the precipitating event that drove me to go out there. I wanted to ask them why they were violating their oaths to the Constitution.
0: And that's the uh, tactic that Homeland Security Acting Deputy Secretary Ken Cuccinelli was addressing this morning on CNN. He said that law enforcement everywhere occasionally uses unmarked vehicles and that, you know, it's such a common tactic. It's not something to be remarked upon. But for you, seeing folks in what looked like camo military fatigues on the streets of your city as a veteran, that inspired you to want to come and and talk to them, right?
1: Absolutely. I wanted to go down there and ask them if they thought that this was right. And so I put on all the Navy stuff that I had so that I would hope that since these guys, I'm assuming a lot of them are vets, that it would at least give them pause so that I could talk to them. I came down there specifically that night to get up and talk to them.
0: And you approached this line of uh, uh, mostly men who were in the fatigues, in in helmets, and yeah. kind of pr- protecting this building. And, and what happened?
1: Well, I started trying to talk to them, but everybody was sort of screaming. And even them, they seemed to, they were in a sort of a really heightened state of aggression probably because of fear, because my speculation is they weren't trained to do this. And the reason I believe that is from an up, very close upfront uh, observation of what they were doing, there didn't seem to be any kind of coherent tactics to what they were doing. To a great degree, they were acting like a mob with sticks. And um, if you notice when that guy, that little dude off to my left started whacking me with the baton, it didn't seem to bother him at all because He even hit me in the back as I was walking away. Hmm. So if this is something that's so common that it's not to be remarked upon, I don't know what that says about our country anymore.
0: And I want to mention the tactical issue. The New York Times got a hold of a DHS memo over the weekend that indicated that most of these uh, federal law enforcement agents that have been deployed by DHS indeed haven't had the kind of training that involve crowd control, things that you would encounter when you are trying to police a protest because they are used to doing law enforcement at the border and doing drug busts and, and things like that. So as you walked up, Chris, and and you tried to engage in a dialogue with these, as you mentioned, many of them may be former military members as well. And you, you know, off to your left in the video, you can see one of the agents takes a, a a stick and begins hitting you. I mean what what are you thinking at that point? Because you seem to just stand there like a tree. Like you don't even kind of react as as you're getting getting beaten.
1: Um well one of the officers had a weapon pointed at me. So if I reacted, would I have been shot? Is that also a tactic that's so common as to not be remarked upon
0: so you were trying to keep you're cool and and stand your ground, but not engage in anything that would, was going to inflame the situation anymore is what I'm hearing you say.
1: Yeah, I stood my ground unarmed and they still chose to beat the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. And again, that little dude hit me in the back as I was walking away and had been blinded by a couple blasts of pepper spray.
0: And you sustained injuries. You went to the hospital. How how are you doing? What were the
2: injuries?
1: Well, I've got a couple fractures in my hand and I'm going to have to have surgery either later this week or early next week to uh, to have some plates and screws and pins, you know, inserted in there.
0: Mm. I'm speaking with Chris David, a former Navy officer and a Portland resident. You probably saw a video of him yesterday if you were on social media. He went viral because he was walking up during one of the protests on Saturday night in Portland to speak with some of the federal agents who were there in camo fatigues, trying to protect federal buildings in that city. And Chris, as he stood unarmed, was beaten by one of the federal agents and then and then pepper sprayed. And so I see you walking away when you get pepper sprayed there, Chris, as most people would. Um, you know, at that point, did you think that something worse would happen to you? I mean, what's going through your mind as you're getting hit, you're trying to keep your cool, and you've got pepper spray in your face.
1: Well, I, no, I figured that that was the end of it. They were, they had their fun, so I was going to walk away, but the problem was I couldn't see anymore, and I would walked into a giant cloud of tear gas. So my first priority at that point was to get as far away from them as I could, hmm. just because I was choking and I couldn't see.
0: And I mean, this is your first protest. It's yeah. obviously something that you fought for, uh, you, you served in the Navy, and it's something that people who serve in the military are sworn to protect, the Constitution. How, how are you thinking about what's going on in Portland now after seeing what you saw firsthand, after experiencing what you did firsthand?
1: Well, I'm still enraged about it, but getting a very close-up perspective, I can tell that there's no plan that's actually being implemented. There's a goal They want to get rid of the protesters, but they just don't have a plan. They're doing the same thing over and over again every night with the same result. And the protests are only getting bigger.
0: What do you hope the video that went viral of you? I mean, people are calling you, you know, a badass because you look so, you know, strong as you stand there unarmed again. And and you're getting beaten by federal agents. Um, People are idolizing you. Uh, I think, you know, you probably feel a mix of emotions and you are exhausted after this weekend. But what do you hope the video does as more and more people see uh, what happened when you tried to speak with some of these agents in in Portland?
1: I want this to be a call to arms to my fellow vets to not tolerate this anymore.
0: And you want fellow veterans to become part of part of a political movement or or part of the protests?
1: A political movement just... This whole thing started because of Black Lives, the Black Lives movement, right? that's mm. really the whole goal and point of the, well, what's going on here. It has nothing to do with, you know, me be getting beaten up by the feds. The biggest point and the biggest goal behind all of this is the Black Lives movement. And I think that's getting lost here in this conversation. I'm, you know, so I'd like us to get back to that core point, And I'd like, as a, a call to arms to my fellow vets, to go out there and get involved and support it.
0: Chris, is there anything else that you want to say? And I know you're recovering. You're going to have to have surgery on your hand. Anything else that you want to say about what occurred in Portland or what you hope going forward?
1: I love this city and I love the people in it. And this invasion of thugs is not wanted, nor is it warranted.
0: Chris David, Navy veteran and a Portland resident. His uh, actions at the protest on Saturday night in downtown Portland went viral because they were captured on video. He stood his ground unarmed and was beaten by federal law enforcement and and pepper sprayed. And, uh, Chris, thank you very much for joining us here on 89.3 KPCC. We wish you well in your recovery.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on.
0: Also joining us right now is Tuck Woodstock, independent journalist who's been covering the protests in Portland. And Tuck has bylines with Portland Mercury, The Washington Post, NPR and more. And if you want to follow Tuck, they tweet at Tuck Woodstock. Tuck, we have been watching from afar. We've been watching on CNN and local news cameras and and the social media images that are captured What can you tell me about what's going on in the streets of Portland every night and what has happened since these federal agents have arrived?
3: Hmm. It's really interesting because we've been out there for more than 50 days. I've been out there as a journalist. Other folks are out there as protesters, medics, legal observers, volunteers. And I am really glad that National attention has turned to the protests going on in Portland now that the federal agents are there. But I think it's really important to remember that uh, the tactics used by the federal agents were not particularly surprising to us uh, because they did closely match the tactics that were already being used by the Portland Police Bureau and the County Sheriff's Office for uh, for several weeks before the federal agents arrived Uh, You know, the Portland Police Bureau was also tear gassing folks. They were also using less lethal munitions. I mean, there is a now very uh, viral story about the federal agent shooting an unarmed protester straight in the head with uh, less less lethal munitions. But Portland Police Bureau has also done that. And Multnomah County County Sheriff, so sorry, I only slept three hours, um, has also done that. Uh, There are stories about the federal agents like pulling people into unmarked vans, but Portland police has also been pulling people in and out of cars, you know, and so it, it's it's important to show that federal agents are doing this because it's harder as a city for Portland to hold the federal agents accountable. But I think it's also important to look at the tactics being used by uh, city, state and county officials as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me. I've been covering the protests in Los Angeles and our reporters here and in- including Josie Wong, um, have been out weekly and at at many of the major protests that are still going on. And we've seen even one of our own reporters hit with one of the less lethal rounds um, in his in his neck and having to go to the hospital. You know, we know that there are tactics that uh, are being questioned and and, uh, investigations going on in many cities on the way that protests have been cracked down on, the way police are uh, attending to crowds, the way that they maybe are creating confrontations or you know, overuse of, of uh, you know, tactics that are not appropriate in the situation of a peaceful protest. But I think Portland specifically, because of these images of the federal law enforcement that have arrived and are kind of seen as this outside force policing what's going on on the ground, it's really captured a lot of the nation's attention and, and had a lot of us wondering, is our city next, you know, is Los Angeles, if protests heat up again here, going to see a similar response from the White House? And so I think that's why we're really curious about what's happening in Portland. And um Tuck Woodstock joining us, independent journalist, they have bylines with the Portland Mercury and all kinds of media up there in, in Portland. What are you hearing from you know, the the legal experts or the legal uh, folks who are on the ground in Portland, because I know most of these protests also have uh, people doing pro bono legal work and, you know, trying to talk to protesters about their rights if they get arrested. Do you hear anything from these folks in this community about uh, what recourse there may be if there is an overstep by these federal agents?
3: Yeah, it's, it is interesting because Portland Police Bureau, as I mentioned, uh, was using these tactics that many people found objectionable. And there were actual, actually several restraining orders filed by various groups against the police bureau um, that prevented them from using certain tactics, or at least, you know, recommended strongly that they don't use those certain tactics. Uh, and... So they actually, you know, scaled back a little bit of, of their violent tactics, and now these federal agents are out there, and none of that applies to them. So just to take one example, uh, there's a restraining order by the ACLU that uh, Portland police can no longer arrest or assault journalists, which should not have to be um, a legal mandate, but it did. And uh, Portland police has not always followed that, but they are, you know, there's legal recourse if they don't follow that. Uh, There is no such thing right now at this moment for the federal agents. Uh, And so they can theoretically, uh, you know, assault and arrest me for trying to film for doing my job uh, and having, and I would have no recourse really for that. Uh, So yeah, what I'm hearing from uh, legal experts is also that uh, getting charges dropped by protesters would be, you know, much, much less likely because if a protester is arrested by Portland police. Uh, they're going up against our new DA, Mike Schmidt, who is seen as fairly progressive and may drop the charges. Uh, if you're arrested by uh, federal agents, the, they're federal charges, so they may be more severe. Uh, you cannot be released on bail because there's no bail in that system. And also, uh, the charges are you know, really by the federal government. They're by William Barr, and uh, they're likely to be uh, much harsher, much less lenient. And so, uh, yeah, that's been interesting to sort of learn more about as well. I'm certainly not a legal expert, but that's what I've been hearing.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting in the overlapping Venn diagrams of what's going on in Portland between the local law enforcement and the DA and then what happens with federal charges and the attorney general of the United States. I mean, that's a, a whole new maze to navigate for folks there. Final question, Tuck, is there anything that... That you see uh, changing here in the next few days. Obviously, the nightly protests in Portland are going to continue. They've ramped up because of this federal crackdown. What's next? I mean, what? where's the breaking point here?
3: You know, what's really interesting is that, like I said, I've been out here for this is the eighth week and I was out last night and the crowd felt as big and as energized and as uh, diverse in the demographics of folks there uh, as it did for the very first week. Like the protests had dwindled down, even with the federal agency, the protests had dwindled down to maybe 100, 150 people per night. And then all of a sudden, with all of this national attention, it's back up to more than a thousand people per night. We have all of these people who are self-identifying as like concerned moms and dads coming out in blocks. Uh, We have like city officials coming to see what's going on. And so I think that they're just getting bigger from here. And I really have no idea when this is going to wrap up.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a something that we are confronting in cities across the country as the protests that were sparked by George Floyd's death and killing by the Minneapolis Police Department. And then, of course, ongoing racial injustice and calls for defunding the police. All of this wrapped up in, in protests that are ongoing in different cities. But Portland certainly seems to be the nexus of, of a lot of these issues. Tuck Woodstock, independent journalist, thank you so much for joining us here on Air Talk. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the legacy of Congressman John Lewis, who died on Friday. And we'll have a check-in on voting rights in the United States because that was one of his key platforms and key things that he fought for over the years. I'm Libby Denkman, in for Larry Mantle today on AirTalk, back after this short break. Hi, it's Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle. Today on AirTalk, Congressman John Lewis has passed away. He died on Friday. He was the son of an Alabama sharecropper who became a freedom rider and one of the most well-known champions for civil rights. He was 80 years old. He was a young man, just 23, when he spoke at the March on Washington alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's, that was in 1963.
4: Those who are there, be patient and wait... We We must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now.
0: Tributes to Lewis have been pouring in all weekend, but those who knew him or were inspired by him say they want more than kind words. They're demanding concrete action to forward the causes of racial equality and voting rights. Issues that Lewis fought tenaciously for and literally shed his blood for during his life of activism and public service. Here to talk what, about what John Lewis meant to the country and where we go from here, Emil Moffat joins us, a reporter for WABE, the NPR affiliate station in Atlanta. And Emil, I know it's been an emotional weekend there in Atlanta. Can you set the scene for me? How are people doing and, and how are people grieving in the community?
5: Sure. Uh, We found out about uh, Congressman Lewis's death late Friday night here, Eastern Time, and by mid-morning on Saturday, uh, people already started bringing uh, flowers and signs and and tributes to him and placing them below a six-story building which has a mural painted on the side of it uh, with John Lewis's uh, face on it, Um, and that mural is just down the street, just a couple of blocks from the Martin Luther King Jr. Center uh, where uh, he was born, where uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was born and where uh, he, uh, he lies right now um, as far as his, uh, his gravesite goes. So it's a very significant area um, in Atlanta. Uh, but lots of people started streaming to that site. And uh, we spoke to a number of them. And the thing that they said the most was how present in the community John Lewis was. Many of them spoke of chance encounters either on the campaign trail or just sometimes in the grocery store uh, or at a restaurant uh, around Atlanta and said that he really was responsive to the community. He listened to the problems. He listened to the issues and was really a a true representative uh, of Atlanta.
0: You know, he seems like such a sweet and gentle man in interviews. Uh, at the same time, of course, he had this strength and resolve that helped him achieve so much from an early age uh, right up until his death. What will the legacy of John Lewis be in Atlanta itself? We we know kind of the national picture, but what does it look like there in the area where he represented in North Atlanta?
5: Uh, it's definitely going to be a legacy of of civil rights, of fighting uh, for the rights, and, and I heard at a at a candlelight vigil that was held here last night. People said that he really fought for the rights of everyone. Uh, he is known as fighting for civil rights for African-Americans, but uh, also a, a number of uh, people who are not African-Americans said, I felt like he was fighting for me as well and, and fighting for the issues that I care in, uh, about. Um, and so I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, people just really felt like he represented them. He listened to their problems, um, and you're really with the with the social justice movement that's going on right now across the country, and certainly here in Atlanta. Uh, people feel like it is a really good opportunity to take his example and to take uh, what he did in in the 1960s, and really going forward, and really throughout his life, and use that as as a model, as an example uh, for what they're trying to accomplish today.
0: When you have a situation where uh, the governor of Georgia and the mayor of Atlanta are at odds over uh, issues related to protests and the uh, ongoing effort to address uh, police violence against the black community, I mean, this death coming at this time, it seems like such a symbolic and powerful moment. As you mentioned, are, are people really looking to kind of capture that and keep Representative Lewis's activism going, even even in grief.
5: Yeah, I think you're seeing what you're seeing when you see some of these tributes from from leaders on both sides of the aisle. Um, A lot of people who are uh, insupportive of uh, of the current movement, the current social justice movement, are saying that's nice that you have expressed your condolences and have said what a great figure John Lewis was. But if you're standing in the way of some of the reforms that he wanted and some of the policies that he um, uh, really championed, um, then then you need to listen. That would be the best tribute to John Lewis's life and his career and his passion would be to listen to the concerns of the protesters, of the demonstrators um, and really take their their demands and their um, and and what they want done seriously. And And I do think it is it's a it's a very. A critical time in our city's history. There's a lot of issues that are being grappled with with regards to uh, to violence and to uh, systemic racism. Uh, and so I think it, his death really does come at, at an important time. And, and people who uh, were at the vigil last night, people who came out to the mural on Saturday afternoon, they were just speaking about how much his legacy means to people in Atlanta, especially in the time we're in right now.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated a tweet I saw from Sam Sanders, the host of It's Been a Minute, uh, one of the NPR podcasts, and we also air it here on KPCC. And he said, I'm paraphrasing here, something along the lines of, you know, if John Lewis was able to, he would be out on the streets today. You know, don't pretend like this is you can sanitize, you know, some of the uh, remembrances sort of uh, ignoring his ongoing efforts and and his really strong criticisms of the current uh, administration and what is happening in the world today, do you think that there is uh, a worry that that will occur, that people will you know, want to remember John Lewis as an icon of the past and not think about what's going forward and, and what can really change um, right here today that people are getting arrested for and people are really shedding blood for on the streets uh, as we speak?
5: I think it's significant that one of uh, John Lewis's last public appearances was um, appearing uh, near the the Black Lives Matter uh, sign that was painted in the street in Washington, D.C. Very powerful images of uh, John Lewis, who was battling cancer for several months, um, that he went out to make that appearance. And in some of the later interviews that he did in just the last few months, he spoke very uh, eloquently and passionately how proud he was of the movement that is going on right now. And he saw that as as kind of a legacy of the things he started, uh, he helped start in the 1960s going forward. Um, so I think he was very uh, cognizant of the fact that that things have changed a lot since he started in the 1960s as a teenager um, to right now when he passed away at the age of 80 and there are still these these protests and demonstrations going on. So I, I think there's a there's a concern that that some might use um, his uh, his image and his uh, likeness and not take the concerns that he had seriously. And so I think there's really a movement right now to say, hey, let's look at what he stood for and let's try to build on that and, and honor him with some of the um, uh, issues around around voting, around civil um uh, civil disobedience and civil uh, you know uh, social justice mm-hmm. they're saying that that they want uh, really his legacy to to live on not just in words and and in images but in actual policy
0: Emil Moffat, reporter for WABE NPR station in Atlanta thank you very much for for joining us and with that you know powerful statement about the desire of people who are honoring John Lewis to really look at voting rights and look at civil rights uh, in our modern era. I want to turn to Fernita Tolson, vice dean for faculty and academic affairs and professor of law at USC, where she specializes in election law. And uh, Professor Tolson, we look at what's occurring today ahead of the 2020 election And really what's been going on since the Supreme Court's 2013 ruling, the uh, Shelby County versus Holder ruling, that really gutted a a large part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that was put in place after Congressman Lewis was beaten at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. What is happening today that you see and and what is the effect of, of the ruling from 2013 on current voting rights.
6: Um, Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, So I I do think if you look at what's going on today in terms of the extent of voter suppression um, and efforts to disenfranchise voters, um, I think it is indicative of why Representative Lewis continued to fight. Right. So he was one of the youngest people to speak at the 63 March. Um, And then he spent, you know, the last five decades trying to uh, perfect sort of the promise of that era. Um, so, so I think it's, it's really important to sort of talk about these issues in the context of the sacrifices that he made. And not only him, but um, C.T. Vivian also passed on Friday. And he was also a very important part of the civil rights movement. And so to lose two very important um, kind of hallmarks of that era, I think it's, um, it signals the passing of the torch. And there's a question of whether or not we're going to rise to the occasion. Because if you look at what's going on now, we're still dealing with some of the same issues. Um, Shelby County in particular is, is important in thinking about the struggles ahead, because in the wake of the Shelby County decision, which you mentioned gutted a portion of the Voting Rights Act, you've seen efforts by states to make voting much more harder, right? They've passed more restrictive voter identification laws. They have closed many polling places. Um, and, and in some ways, the, the difficulties that voters have had uh, casting ballots in the time of coronavirus and COVID is a reflection of these broader efforts to make it more difficult to vote. Um, so the, court is not being, the Supreme Court is not being very amenable to claims that um, accommodations need to be made given that we live in a global pandemic, right? And that's kind of the legacy of Shelby County, pushing back against an expansive vision of voting that Representative Lewis and others actually championed. Um, and so I think that in order for us to do our part and, and try to perfect the dream that, um, you know, Dr. King and Representative Lewis and C.T. Vivian and others from that movement had, we have to continue to push back against restrictive efforts to, to, um, to keep people from exercising their, their, their right to vote. And so it'll be a difficult path, um, and I think John Lewis, he recognized that, right? He sort of understood historically that anytime time there's progress, there will be efforts to push back against that progress. Mm -hmm. Um, This happened after the Civil War with Reconstruction and then efforts to dismantle that. It took 100 years to get to the 65 uh, Voting Rights Act, um, and there were efforts to push back against that. And so um, the march towards universal and more inclusive suffrage has not been linear. Um, He understood that. We have to make sure we understand that and continue to fight.
0: And just to be clear, if folks are not clear on what Shelby County did, basically in 2013, the Supreme Court ruled five to four that these states that were the subject of regulation because of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 had needed pre clearance from the Attorney General or federal judges in order to make any changes to election or voting laws. But in 2013, the Supreme Court Removed that and said that Congress needs to draft a new formula to identify those states, to uh, identify the states that need extra oversight. But with a deadlock Congress, we're not going to see those new rules uh, written or or effectually enforced. And so, basically, these states that were formerly the subject of Voting Rights Act regulation—Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, Virginia. You know, 14 states enacted new voting laws ahead of 2016, and and six of those were previously covered by the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Professor Tolson, right now, you know, we saw some uh, movement in Texas, for example, where they had to water down their voter ID law. Uh, legal challenges in Virginia, uh, things that are ongoing. Uh, what are, what is your closest watched? issue involving voting rights? Is it the the mail-in ballots that you mentioned because of COVID?
6: Um, So right now, yes. So so currently there is COVID-related voting litigation ongoing in um, 38 or 39 states. So, I mean, this has been um, a huge focus for those of us working in this area, just in terms of whether or not states will um, loosen their, uh, for those states that require voters to have a, a, an excuse in order to vote absentee, will they loosen their requirement in order to make accommodations for um, coronavirus? And um, Texas in particular has refused to do that, and um, the Supreme Court has allowed them to do that. Um, a- another thing that people have been closely watching is the, uh, the controversy surrounding Amendment 4 in Florida, which re-enfranchised those with felony convictions. Um, but the state legislature passed a law that said that all fines and fees had to be paid before those individuals could exercise the right to vote. Um, and the Supreme Court recently issued an order that, uh, uh, that kept in place a stay, to, um, which, which basically negated Amendment 4 for the current election. So those hundreds of thousands of individuals that would have otherwise been able to vote um, won't be able to do so for the November election. And so these are some things that people are paying attention to. And um, and this is in addition to just, you know, the, the regular challenges that we've had post-Shelby County with ensuring broad access to the ballot. A lot of states have closed polling places um, since Shelby County. A lot of states have uh, en- enacted restrictive voter ID laws and um, other restrictions. There's been, um, you know, more restrictive partisan gerrymandering, which infringe on voting rights. And so there's just been a number of things that the right to vote has has essentially been under attack. And I think COVID and Corona has made that um, has exacerbated that situation because the court is not viewing COVID as a sufficient excuse to depart from their usual posture of deferring to the states. Right, so the Shelby County decision in particular is important in how the court views our system of elections. They are trying to go back to a system in which the states handle mostly everything um, regulations with respect to the right to vote, as well as time, place, and manner regulations that govern state and federal elections. So, the full apparatus they want the states to take the lead on that. Um, and because that's their view, anytime the federal government intervenes, then they have to have a really good reason. Congress has to have a really good justification for intruding because that is a departure from the court's baseline of the states should regulate this. Um, Shelby County, that is one of its biggest legacies, and that is why it's difficult for Congress to weigh in. But to be clear, there is a bill, right? There is a bill that would uh, would introduce a new preclearance formula under the Voting Rights Act that is sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk.
0: Right, that's the Voting Rights Advancement Act that uh, was passed by the House, right? And you know, folks are renewing their calls to get the Senate to take that up in the passing in the 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 wake of John Lewis's passing. Um, do you have any optimism about that? It is it is Mitch McConnell who uh, holds
6: the holds the reins there. No, um, <laughs> I don't think that they will pass it. Uh, but I do think that. You know to be to be clear, if you really want to honor John Lewis and you want to honor his legacy and you want to honor everything he fought for, how could you not pass it right that That is more meaningful and profound than issuing a statement on Twitter or Facebook or social media and and sort of talking about his legacy and how he's an icon, but ignoring that there's a bill that would cement that legacy mm-hmm. pass the bill name it after him right this is this is not rocket science this is a situation in which. There is a concrete action that could be taken in order to truly f- further John Lewis's legacy. Um, Renita I- Tolson, we
0: are just up against the clock, but I, I think that your words are uh, very much needed right now to understand what's happening with voting rights and the concrete action that people who remember Representative John Lewis would like to see moving forward. As you say, there is a bill. There is a bill that's been passed by the House, but not taken up by the Senate. Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at USC, where she specializes in election law. We were remembering the legacy of Congressman John Lewis, who died at the age of 80 on Friday and the ongoing fight for voting rights, access to the ballot, and civil rights in this country. I'm Libby Denkman, in for Larry Mantle while he's on vacation this week. We're going to get our daily update from a medical expert on COVID-19. So get your questions ready. Call us or tweet us or send us an email. Anything you want to know about what's going on with the pandemic right now. It's 89.3 KPCC. Back in a minute. Hi there, it's Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle today. Larry's out all week. Well, the country shattered its single-day coronavirus infection record on Friday when 77,000 new cases were reported. The worst hotspots appear to be in Texas and Arizona, where medical facilities are running out of drugs, beds, and reportedly staff capacity seems to be one of the biggest problems in dealing with COVID-19 patients right now. And while coronavirus deaths in the U.S. are still below their peak back in April, the New York Times reports daily fatalities are also now now on the rise as of mid-July. The CDC is projecting between 150,000 and 170,000 total deaths by August 8th. We're around 140,000 right now. According to the L.A. Times, California is averaging over 8,800 new cases and 96 new deaths per day. And most of the state's population does live in a county that is on Governor Newsom's watch list that restricts things like restaurants, bars, school openings, all of those uh, important parts of life. Here in Los Angeles, the county reported its highest number of new hospitalizations in a day on Sunday and Mayor Garcetti is now saying that the city's at threat level orange, but he is on the brink of issuing a new stay at home order for Los Angeles if cases continue to rise. So, Every day on AirTalk, Larry and his medical guests have been trying to cut through confusion and really do this opportunity for you to call in and talk to a doctor, talk to an expert about what's going on with COVID-19, what you can expect if you have questions or confusions, anything at all. Give us a call. Uh, you can reach us, uh, and if somebody can put up the the current call-in number. I know we've been kind of uh, dealing with remote work. It's 866-893-5722. Thank you to Fiona, our uh, crack senior producer with that. 866-893-5722 to call in and ask a question about COVID-19. You can also email the show or tweet us at Airtalk on, on Twitter. Right now joining me is Dr. Sanjeet Dadwal. He's the chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at City of Hope Cancer Center. Dr. Dadwall, thank you very much for being on Airtalk today.
1: Good
4: morning. Thank you, Libby.
0: Good morning. And, you know, your first reaction to the past week or so and the information that we are getting about case numbers, fatalities, everything going on in Southern California right now.
4: Significant concern. Obviously, this is... Uh not what we want to be, the situation we are in. And uh, this basically translates to all uh, you know, all people in the community, all ages, all walks of life. So it, it is a very concerning situation. It is a dangerous situation. We do have a significant uh, you know, amount of virus circulating in the community, and uh, it's, it's doing its uh, dirty job.
0: And when we look at the number of deaths, again, not as high as what we were seeing back in April, but now the New York Times nationally tracking, seeing deaths going up. What is behind that? Are we just seeing the pandemic moving into areas where we haven't had vulnerable populations exposed to the virus yet?
4: That is correct. I am say since the beginning of this pandemic, as we all know, have seen beginning was in Washington State, then New York State got significantly hit. California did a great job early on, but in the last, uh, as you can see, sort of couple of weeks, it has gone downhill significantly. And other parts of the country are also seeing the same thing. So there is a significant amount of population which is at risk, and uh, we, we have a significant amount of population which is elderly. We have a large component of immunocompromised hosts. And those patients, when they get infected, uh, are going to be contributing to those uh, fatalities and mortality numbers. And uh, yeah, I'm saying that is sort of, you see the cases first, they get to the ICU, and we can see the ICU admissions have gone up steadily. And those who don't do well or who pass away are then contributing to those mortality numbers. So one can definitely see that those numbers may go up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We've been looking at studies, especially uh, a big one out of South Korea, about community spread within kids of different age groups. And it looks like, according to this study out of South Korea, that children younger than about 9 or 10 have a significantly lower community spread than kids older, between 10 and 19. So that the cutoff is about fourth or fifth grade there um, with the risk of community spread. What do you make of the differences in spread between these populations? I mean, it seems to me reading as a a layperson that it could be as simple as children who are younger are shorter and they don't breathe and cough on uh, people as as easily because of the, the distance between their mouths and other people's faces.
4: I think one can look at it with uh, different perspectives. One is definitely they are not as independent in going and doing things about it as a 10-year-old can go with his buddies or other kid friends in the local community, like in the neighborhoods. You could be biking together otherwise, and if somebody is sick, they can sort of pass it on. More than likely, in the younger kids, at least in our society, I would say, I don't like to use the term helicopter parents. We, in the last decade or so, most of the kids in that age group have always had planned activities. So if those planned activities have gone down significantly, probably you'll see lesser numbers. The day cares have been closed, schools have been closed. So you may not see that number in the younger population. But um, so there is data out there that that population is probably going to get affected as well.
0: Dr. Sanjeet Dadwal is with me, Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at City of Hope Cancer Center. We're answering your questions about the COVID-19 pandemic. 866-893-5722 is the call-in number. You can also email or tweet at us, 866-893-5722. Back with your questions in just a minute. It's 89.3 KPCC. Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle while he's on vacation. Dr. Sanjeet Dadwal is with me from the City of Hope, and we're answering your questions about COVID-19. The doctor is answering your questions uh, primarily. I got John in Santa Monica's point uh, loud and clear. He called in to say that he sees what's happening in L.A. as Mayor Garcetti's faults because he's refused to do regulation around masks or distancing. Um, I mean, the the mayor has ordered masks in, you know, shopping areas. The the county and the city have, John, but I know that there's a lot of feeling about, you know, why there was opening up of dine-in restaurants and things like that. Um, you know, prior to this second wave of infections. So that's definitely an issue that's on our minds. Michael in Torrance called to say that, you know, in an effort to prevent spread with masks, why are we not also covering our eyes from potential exposure? Could Dr. Dadwall talk about the potential for infection through mucous membranes in the eyes? Doctor?
4: Yes. So, um, you know, as we've seen, Uh, with this pandemic evolving, the routes of transmission, there have been a lot of concerns how it is being transmitted. Uh, What we know is that uh, there could be enhanced droplet transmission. And the point of the goggles is if, if the mouth is not covered and we are sneezing or coughing or singing or shouting loudly, you may be creating aerosols, and if they hit the mucous membrane such as I, yes, there is a potential for transmission. However, if there are two individuals close together having their masks on they're not going to be passing the virus uh, directly to the eyes so goggles in that situation are not necessary as long as you have uh, your masks on but definitely in some situations like in healthcare facilities where it's not always possible to have let's say patients wearing a mask on and the nurses out there or is out there they don't have their eye protection they're potentially at risk for getting infected
0: Really good question uh, on that. Uh, Lisa is on the line. Lisa from La Crescenta, and I understand you have a question about kids with asthma, right, Lisa?
6: Hi, doctor. Thank you. We have so many kids with mild to moderate asthma in Los Angeles, and I'm wondering, uh, is it a greater risk of them getting it or having a more severe case?
4: The risk of getting is dependent upon the exposure, So if if the kids are out in the community and they're exposed to somebody who has the infection, that is what's going to make them likely to get infected. So I don't think so being an asthmatic translates uh, more likely to get it. But on the flip side, if somebody has underlying medical situation, they may have bad complications.
0: And, Doctor, the, Billy in Arcadia is writing in with a related question saying um, that she has an autoimmune disease uh, uh, that, you know, could—she's could, could she's worried that it could be something that would make her more vulnerable to complications. Actually, she says she has cirrhosis, and I'm not sure if that's autoimmune. Um, should Billy be more concerned, as somebody with cirrhosis, about exposure and being more vulnerable to complications?
4: So I would begin to say by this, In this pandemic we have learned that the patients who have suffered the most are those who have underlying pre-existing conditions, name it diabetes, underlying immunologic conditions, so any chronic disease, and cirrhosis is one of them too, because it is almost synonymous with end-stage liver disease. So yes, I would say anybody who has underlying disease should take extra precaution, and that includes cancer patients, transplant patients. I work at a cancer center to take care of them. We are so much uh, in the process of explaining to our patients to avoid exposure at all costs if they can.
0: There's a question from Facebook, uh, from Dixie, who says, I keep hearing about the virus lifespan on surfaces. If a virus is just a string of proteins not living, can it linger on surfaces indefinitely? Can it die if it's not alive?
4: Well... There's been lots stated about uh, viruses, and it's not just about the pandemic. I'm say this coronavirus. There are other viruses also which can be transmitted from fomites. One of the examples is respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, which is a cause of respiratory illness in patients who have chronic lung diseases or pre-born, I mean, preterm kids and even transplant patients. So those viruses can actually survive on certain surfaces, but it's not like unlimited time. Mm-hmm.
0: Linda from Huntington Beach, something a lot of people have on their minds. She takes her dogs to doggy daycare. The caretakers wear masks and follow a no-contact procedure with clients. But Linda's wondering if dogs can pick up the virus and transfer it.
4: Well, I'm saying there was a concern early on. There was one newspaper article out, I think, from Korea, which indicated some suggestion. But it has really not been shown that the pets have been uh, responsible for transmission of the virus.
0: Oh, do you have a, a page there, doctor? If you if you have a, a pressing uh, need, do you have to get going. No, that's okay. Okay. Well, final question for you. I know that there's uh, a lot of people wondering about. Um, the effect of antibodies and headlines saying that antibodies fade from coronavirus more swiftly than we'd like. What do you have, uh, you know, to to give us a little nugget of information about that in the last 30 seconds?
4: Yes. So I, I would start by giving a very quick primer on immunity, how it works. So immunity has two arms to it. One we call antibody sites, the humoral immunity, and the other is the cellular immunity, which is the lymphocyte. So even though the antibodies may decline with a period of time after vaccination, which happens with other vaccines, too, the underlying cellular immunity can still be working in the uh, behind the scenes.
0: Dr. Dadwal, oh, just had to cut you off. I'm so sorry because of the clock. Dr. Dadwal, Sanjeet Dadwal with the City of Hope Cancer Center. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Air Talk. I'm Libby Denkman sitting in for Larry Mansell while he is away, and I hope he's enjoying the start of the Dodgers mini season. Cody Bellinger, uh, first inning Grand Slam. How's that for a kickoff yesterday? Uh, the regular season, uh, as as it is, the, as regular as it gets this year, uh, starts on Thursday against the Giants. Well, we are about three and a half months away from the November 3rd general election, and as usual for California elections, voters will be asked to navigate a slew of ballot propositions on a range of complicated issues from criminal justice to property taxes. I usually think of propositions as the brain teaser portion of the ballot, and it is never too early to get started on getting comfortable with these issues. So here to help preview the propositions are some of the all stars, I would say, of the California Politics Press Corps. Katie Orr, Government and Politics Reporter for KQED. Hi, Katie. Hi, Libby. And Ben Christopher, Reporter covering California Politics and Elections at Cal Matters. Hi, Ben. Hey, Libby. Also on the line is Fernando Guerra, professor of political science and Chicano-Latino studies and director of the, Sen- the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University. And Professor Guerra is also a member of the KPCC Board of Trustees. Welcome, Fernando.
7: Thank you, Libby. Not an all-star, just a utility player.
0: Oh, always an all-star in our book here, Fernando. Thank you. Uh, Katie, you know, we're going to start with you because we're going to take these one by one. There are 12 measures, and so we'll be switching off here. So uh, we won't go too rapid fire, I hope, on, on all of us. But first off, we're looking at Proposition 14, money for stem cell research. Katie or what's on the table
3: here?
2: So, Prop 14 would basically give more money to the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which, as you mentioned, does stem cell research. Specifically, it's a $5.5 billion general obligation bond uh, to put more money into this institute. Um, They call it the CIRM, if we like our acronyms. That was created by voters in 2004 to fund uh, stem cell research. And it was initially funded with $3 billion in bonds. But um, as of October, they reported just having um, $132 million remaining. So this would give it an infusion of cash. The um, proposition has stipulations in there, such as, no more than 7.5% would uh, fund the operation of the actual institute. The rest would have to go towards research and trials and, and programs related to stem cells. Um, it would also cap out the number of uh, full-time employees they could have that have been paid through the bond. So, supporters of this, including the UC Board of Regents, say that we've come a long way in studying stem cells, That they call this the last tactical mile to bring the Broad spectrum of therapies to patients that, re- and it will require more funding. That's a quote from the biggest donor to that um, to the me- the measure. Um, opponents are a little bit confused, or I shouldn't say confused, concerned about um, putting more money into this at a time when the state is facing a ton of. Uh, budget deficits, $50 billion in a budget deficit this year and having to slash other programs. So they believe that money could be better spent in other places.
0: Yeah, probably something they were planning to get on the ballot before the budget crisis from coronavirus occurred. So asking for $5.5 billion, the state to borrow that it probably sounds a lot different now uh, than it did before. Anything else that you want to add on on this one, Katie? It seems pretty straightforward. It's a, a vote yes, would be in favor of the state borrowing five and a half billion dollars to fund stem cell research.
2: Exactly. And I think it comes down to how, you know, how important you think stem cell research is and whether the state should be the one footing the bill for a lot of this um, research, especially at a time when there is a budget deficit. A lot of people say, you know, doesn't matter if it helps us out, you know, gives us a lot of good cures. Other people say it's just not the right time to spend that money.
0: Since that one's pretty straightforward, let's move on to this big kahuna that is proposition 15. Uh Ben Christopher is going to help us with this one. And Ben, this one is maybe the most anticipated uh, property uh proposition on a ballot in years, if not uh decades in California, right? What are we up uh to <laughs> in, in in proposition 15?
8: Yeah, the big kahuna is right. And I was thinking about it. It it doesn't seem like in any other year, I would say, you know, this is by far the most controversial ballot measure. Uh, But, you know, 2020, uh, the 2020 ballot has a lot of pretty contentious stuff on it. So I I do think it's fair to say that we're going to be hearing a lot about this one. So um, it is a little bit more complicated. In the simplest possible terms, Prop 15, which you'll also sometimes hear described as split roll, is a property tax increase. Uh, On many uh, large commercial property owners and that would provide or generate billions of additional dollars to local governments and schools So to understand sort of the nitty-gritty of how this works You have to understand another really high-profile and controversial ballot measure, which was prop 13 from 1978 So uh, for for listeners who don't remember or who don't know prop 13 basically capped property taxes across the state before prop 13 was passed Uh, the property taxes that a homeowner or a commercial property owner uh, paid were based on the market value of a property. So if uh, the market value of a home doubled, for example, the property tax payment due on that home would also double. Uh, Prop 13 changed those rules so that property taxes were set not on the current value of the property, but how much it was purchased for. So if a home was purchased for, say, $300,000 and then the value doubled to $600,000, The property tax owed wouldn't double as well. It would be tied to that initial price of $300,000. The property tax payment could increase uh, from one year to the next, but it was capped at 2%. So just to put this simply, Prop 13 gave property owners this huge tax cut. And the longer that someone owns a piece of property, assuming property values go up, uh, which they generally do in California, uh, the bigger that tax break.
0: And Ben, just just let me pause you right there, because that in of itself has caused so many ripple effects over the years in California politics. And I wanted to get Fernando Guerra to kind of step in before we get to how Proposition 15 will really uh, address Prop 13, which is from 1978. Uh, Fernando Guerra with Loyola, uh, what are we looking at in terms of how did Proposition 13 really change California and change politics in this state
7: It is probably the most critical thing that we have voted on in over half a century, maybe a century in California. It changed politics. It changed local governments. It changed everything that has to do with governance in the state of California. I don't want to go into the substance. I think Ben did a a good job, but just think that from 1978 proposition 13, all the way to 2003 with the recall of governor Davis, uh, Republicans and conservatives were able to use the statewide vote to accomplish things they couldn't accomplish in a legislature where Democrats had some power, sometimes the majority of the power, but still they had the governorship, the Republicans did. So they used this initiative process. Uh, since 2010, uh, the, the Democrats have begun the process of repealing many of the propositions and initiatives and policies that that Republican regime put into place. This is the most significant and important one, as Ben said.
0: And Ben, what we're looking at with Proposition 13, again, this is the 1978 proposition, and it was really kicked off by Howard Jarvis. And then that spread all over the country, kind of the taxpayer revolts movement of the 80s, is that the tax base for California had to shift, right? There there was no longer uh, as much money coming from property taxes, commercial and uh, uh, homeowners. And so what we saw was California really became a place where money was coming from uh, taxing the wealthy more than in many other places. Am, am I right on that? How did that impact California and, and the way we make budgets here?
8: No, that's absolutely right. And I mean, it's, it's worth pointing out that there's not really, it's hard to think of a single policy issue in California that isn't in some way affected by Prop 13 and, and, and what you mentioned, which is that you know property taxes are the source, the main source of, of revenue for local um, governments in, in most states. And so by sort of putting a cap on that, it really forced both local governments and state governments to chase these other sources of revenue. So at the state level, we do see much more focus As you said on sort of the top earners through the income tax and that makes our revenue system much more volatile because when uh, The economy is doing really well uh, rich people are also making lots of money in the stock market and that kind of thing and so the money is really um, Surging into state coffers and then the opposite is the case uh, During downturns and likewise at the local level you see a lot more um, Focus on special taxes hotel taxes use fees and that kind of thing so it really does um just change the way that governance works in California in this really fundamental way.
0: And so what Proposition 15, which we will be seeing on the November ballot, is looking to do is something called, as you mentioned, split roll. What does that mean? What is it? What is it trying to tackle here?
8: Right. So those Prop 13 uh, protections that cap on property uh, tax increases um under Prop 13, it applies to both homeowners and commercial property owners. What Prop 15 would do is take that tax break away from large commercial property owners. So uh, just for an example, if you're a, a big box store, say, in California, and you have to pay property tax on the store you own, if Prop 15 passes, you would have to pay taxes based on however much that store is assessed to be valued in that year or in that period, rather than on that initial purchase price, which again, if you're not following all the numbers, basically what it means is that store would probably have to pay a lot more in property tax. There, It's, it's worth pointing out there are a, a bunch of exceptions um, and exemptions. So farms are exempt, and then a much larger exemption are, quote, small businesses, which the proposition defines as a business that owns less than uh, $3 million worth of property in California. Uh, but essentially what we're looking at is it's a large property tax increase on some of the larger commercial property owners in the state.
0: And we're seeing a big push on this from the California Teachers Association, the SEIU uh, California, and uh, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative are really the big powers behind this. California teachers, of course, it makes sense, you know, that that a lot of this money would be going to schools. What are we hearing from opponents uh, of the Prop 15 idea of carving off the commercial properties and making them assess the their their property taxes based on current market value.
8: Right. Well, so just to put this in perspective and and, and to get a sense of why the support is is so strong and the opposition is so strong, the legislative analyst office in Sacramento, which is sort of the nonpartisan fiscal analysis shop for state legislature uh, for the state legislature, it estimates that it would raise anywhere between six and a half and $11.5 billion, which even in California is a lot of money. And that would be divided up with about 60% going to cities and counties and 40% going to schools. And so that's why you see this really strong support from groups like the teachers unions, um, because you, it would just mean a, a massive increase in funding for schools. The opposition um, is equally strong because 6 uh, you know six and a half to $11 billion is a lot it's a big tax increase, and they are rightfully saying that this would be one of the larger tax increases uh, in a, in a generation. And so you have large business groups in the state like the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Roundtable, as well as um, anti-tax or pro low tax groups like the Howard Jarvis tax Taxpayers Association. Again, Howard Jarvis being the guy who led Prop thirteen in the first place. And so as we just heard, split roll, this this concept, it's been sort of a progressive wish list item for years, if not decades. And this really strikes at the heart of of Prop 13, at least on the commercial side. And so it's going to be a really massive fight.
0: Fernando Guerra with Loyola Marymount, I'm curious, what do you make of this political fight? We are going to be inundated with advertisement, mailers, all kinds of information on this. Do you think this is the point at which liberals will finally be able to carve off part of Proposition 13, which for so long has been kind of that third rail in California politics.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think all things being taken into consideration right now, my instinct is that it would pass. However, we still have a long time to go. Um, the uh, proponents are very well organized. The opponents are somewhat organized. They need to really rally the forces. They're much more fragmented, and to the degree that they can get together, raise the funds, and communicate, it will be critical for them. But they have that, that potential. Uh, the group that gets hurt the most is not necessarily corporations or the very small business, but, but it's those developers or landowners that, that own anywhere between 10 to 20 million. Dollars worth of uh, property, sometimes even more, and and those tend to be the uh, biggest entrepreneurs in California regarding development. And I think you're going to see in the long run they're the ones that are going to get negatively impacted. But they're the most fragmented. To what degree are they willing to pay a play and put some of the money in uh, to uh, help the anti Prop 15 group? That that I think is going to be critical. But no doubt, this is the biggest thing on the ballot in the state of California by far, even bigger than the presidential given that uh, I think uh, California is going to go overwhelmingly for Trump.
0: Then Christopher, just as we uh, kind of wrap up, of course, we could keep going on on Prop 13 for a full hour because it is just such a major issue. Um, you know, I think that right now with the coronavirus budget crisis uh, and people and and the extra money that schools are going to have to be paying to get people, uh, teachers and, and their students back in a classroom, if that ever is able to happen, uh, people, voters will look at that and say, OK, we want to give teachers and schools more money. At the same time, you have maybe small businesses who are paying rent to some of these landlords who would be possibly jacking up uh, their prices if this uh, goes through. What are the issues that you think will be most resonating with voters as we look at how Proposition 15 fares in November?
8: Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, you mentioned this with, with Prop 14 when we were talking with Katie Orr about how, you know, all these propositions were sort of envisioned before this new COVID-19 reality set in, set in place, maybe a year before or, or multiple years before. And so you're going to see a lot of uh, tinkering or, or editing of the uh, talking points around these issues as we um, are facing a much different economy, a much different sort of social situation. And so I, I do think, you know, from the yes side, the, the, the pro-Prop 15 side, you're hearing, look, uh, counties and schools in particular are cash strapped right now and they have all these additional costs, particularly schools are going to have to equip themselves for social distancing and, and, um, and, and remote learning. And so they're, they really need all the money they can get. And on the other side, of course, you're going to hear, look, businesses are going out of Going out of business in waves across California. This is the last thing that we need is this giant tax increase.
0: Ben Christopher, reporter covering California politics and elections at Cal Matters, and Ben wrote a really great guide to all the propositions on the Cal Matters website that I encourage you to check out. Fernando Guerra is also on the line with us, professor of political science and Chicano Latino studies, and director of the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University, and Katie Orr, government and politics reporter for KQED. We're getting you ready for November with an early look at the propositions that you'll be deciding on for your ballot. I'm Libby Denkman. Larry Mantle is on vacation this week. Back in a minute. AirTalk, 89.3 KPCC. Libby Denkman here for Larry Mantle. Fernando Guerra with Loyola Marymount University is on the line. So is Ben Christopher at Cal Matters. And Katie Orr is back in the hot seat, a government and politics reporter for KQED because we're moving on in our. Uh, our journey through the propositions, the dozen propositions that voters will be deciding on in November, and Katie, we're up to Proposition 16, which has to do with affirmative action in California. Uh, what is uh, is going to be at stake here?
2: Right. So Proposition 16 is actually a repeal of another proposition that voters approved in 1996. That was Proposition 209, which prohibited the state from uh, from actually using affirmative action. They couldn't take into account things like race or sex when uh, making hiring decisions, awarding contracts, or um, uh, admitting people into the state universities, UC and CSU. So this is something that um, supporters of affirmative action have been trying to Um, if not outright overturn, at least modify unsuccessfully for years. It never got anywhere. This is the first attempt to overturn it um, completely. And it's really interesting because this is one of the um, propositions I think they just, for lack of a better word, got incredibly fortunate with their timing, too, um, because this is something that was the legislature voted to put on. And it comes about as we're seeing upheaval across the country in terms of race relations and the Black Lives Matter movements and, you know, a reckoning with our 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 history here. And those uh, protests started happening and we saw this sail through both the assembly and the Senate. It needed a two thirds vote in both houses to be put on the ballot. And whereas it had struggled in years past or or issues related to it had struggled, this time didn't struggle at all, went right onto the ballot and uh, supporters are really hoping that uh, this political momentum will carry it forward uh, in, in November. Fernando
0: Guerra, I hear Katie talking about the timing and what's going on in the country today. I also think every time, you know, we talk about affirmative action, we're also going back in a history lesson to what was happening in in the early 90s in California and Prop 187 and then what occurred here with Prop 209 and banning affirmative action. Um, Do you think voters today remember those those measures and kind of how they made the Latino community feel in the nineties. And is that going to be on people's minds or is this just a new day? And and we're going to be looking forward at uh, equity and race relations in this country anew.
7: Well, some voters like myself who were around that time will remember, but most people are going to be really focused on what Katie said. And that is this incredible black lives movement that is happening And as it was happening, the legislature, both Assemblywoman Weber and Assemblymember Santiago, really pushed for this and were able to get it on. And they saw the movement, they saw the timing, and it's like really fortuitous. Um, it will be part of the whole slate of progressive uh, initiatives that are going to be on the ballot, and it will have a lot of momentum. I don't think the op- uh, the opponents will have a lot of uh, funding or focus on this, especially Republican and conservatives are going to be focusing on trying to save those seats that they still hold or trying to regain some of those that they lost in eighteen. So I think, to some degree, it has a good chance of passing, especially with Californians coming and overwhelmingly voting for Biden against Trump. I know I misspoke a second ago, uh, but the state's clearly going to go to um, uh, to Biden, and all the progressive measures are going to have. He's going to have a coattail effect, and that would I think greatly uh, help this uh, this initiative.
0: Katie Orr with KQED. There is some uh, historic opposition to reinstating affirmative action because um, the Asian community, uh, parts of the Asian community have said that they feel um, that Asian Americans will be disadvantaged in uh, a situation where uh, race is going to be factored in again because they feel that they are overrepresented in in some areas like higher education. Um, Have you heard anything about whether there is organized opposition from Asian-American groups this time around or any uh, talk about what's going on uh, with that historic opposition?
2: Yes, um, that you're right. That has been one of the main sources of opposition, and that was something that was really different this time around. In fact, um, in the legislature, the uh, legislative um, uh, P- Asian Pacific Islander Caucus actually supported supported the measure, um, and there there has been some discussion about how this will affect Asian Americans. But again, it's it's a reckoning. Uh, on, on, a, on a national scale, and I think some uh, people who may not have supported it in the past and support it now realize that it doesn't doesn't work. Supporters don't believe it works to completely remove race from these equations um, in, in terms of like it being admitted to school or whether or not uh, your your company wins a contract with the state. Because the bottom line is and. You know, we all know that who you are and and your position in society and the color of your skin does matter. And you have to take into account those factors when trying to make sure that everyone gets an equal shot at something. So we're seeing far less opposition to this uh, to this movement today from um, Asian groups. There still is some, but I think it really was highlighted in the legislature where it got a lot of support from those Asian members that this is really, again, maybe an idea whose time has come and the political momentum is just in favor of um, the supporters this time around.
0: Okay, there are 12 props on the November ballot, and I've officially gotten through three of them in the first half an hour. So we have got to pick up the pace. It is entirely my fault because I find my guests so fascinating, and I love talking about all of the things that are coming in November for voters. Katie Orr with KQED, Ben Christopher at Cal Matters, and Fernando Guerra at Loyola Marymount University. Ben, you are up. Uh, Proposition 17, allowing parolees to vote. What is going on there?
1: Okay, I'll be quick.
8: So (laughs) Prop 17, this would allow people who are currently on parole in California to to vote. So um, just to be clear, unlike some states like Arizona or uh, Florida, people who have committed felonies in California are allowed to vote, but only once they are out of prison and no longer on parole. So Prop 17 would would change that last part, restoring the right uh, to vote to people who are out of prison, but are still on parole. And this includes about uh, 40,000 Californians. And, and it's just interesting, you know, you know, Katie was talking about how this, uh, on the issue of affirmative action, this is an issue that had been introduced in the past unsuccessfully. And then this year came around and given the the Black Lives Matter movement and the um, the wave of protest across the country, just really, um, it was sort of, uh, it, for lack of a better term, better it was good timing for the measure. Very mm-hmm. similar dynamic in this case where um, this is an issue that's been introduced before unsuccessfully. The measure was placed on the ballot by the state legislature. It passed both uh, chambers, um, and I, I gotta imagine that this year's protests are, are and the sort of renewed focus on criminal justice reform and the legacy of racism within the criminal justice system have played a big, big role.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, 2018, the uh, Public Policy Institute of California estimated two thirds of parolees in California were Latino or Black, so that will certainly be on the minds of supporters, and and they'll be hoping that voters pay attention to that. Uh, moving on to Proposition 18. And this has to do with whether 17-year-olds should be able to vote. Katie, what's going on here?
2: Yeah, this one is pretty straightforward as well. Um, basically, it would allow a 17-year-old who will be 18 by the time of the next general election to vote in the primary for that election. And the argument in favor of this is that um, in California, you can already pre-register to vote uh, when you're 16 and 17. And um 100 um, over 100,000 teenagers have pre-registered as of February. It also um, tell supporters also say that it makes people who are going to be voting in the general election more informed because they've gone through the primary process. Um, Opponents say that 17 you're still legally a minor you're still considered a child a child you might be under the influence of your parents or uh, you know Teachers at your school, so basically not being independent in your thinking. Uh, but Democrats will point out that that Republicans have typically been opposed to lowering the voting age because younger people tend to be more liberal. So you know that doesn't work well for them. Uh, but again, this is uh, would let you vote in a primary when you're 17 if you will be 18 at the time of the general election.
0: Somebody who educates uh, people who are, you know, just kind of coming into adulthood. Uh, Fernando Guerra at Loyola Marymount University. Any take on, you know, this expansion of the franchise and, uh, you know, what we've seen in California? Yeah, it's
7: greatly symbolic in trying to mobilize youth. They have the lowest turnout. This is a way to try to get them involved earlier. Again, you still have to be 18 in November and what is you know from a philosophical perspective your choices are already carved out by what happens in the primary so for you to really have the franchise when you're 18 in November, you should be able to decide what's also going to be on the ballot, like the rest of the voters over 18 in that same November election. And so philosophically, it seems right, and you should do it, and I'm totally in favor of it. Substantially, I don't know that it would actually greatly impact the turnout and how many more uh, voters you would get in a primary. Really, this only impacts primary elections, not general elections.
0: Yeah, great point. Uh, moving on to Proposition 19, another property tax uh, proposition. And Ben Christopher with Cal Matters, you're here to explain that.
8: I got all the fun ones. I yeah, guess. you really uh, did. You're welcome. <laughs> so, if Prop 18 was was a, a simple one, this is like the Frankenstein's monster of propositions. It's the this product of some serious last minute. Negotiating and compromising, which means it's just it's got a lot going on. So so I'll I'll try and be quick, but but bear with me. So uh, first, it would allow homeowners who are over 55 years uh, old, or who are disabled, or who are victims of natural disaster, to take a portion of the property tax break that they enjoy thanks to Prop 13, which we were talking about earlier, uh, with them when they sell their home and move to a new home. So under uh, current law, thanks to Prop 13, if you move and buy a new house. Your the, your assessment, and therefore your your property tax payment is reset to the value of the new home, which is usually higher. So, if Prop 19 passes, um, these spe- special class of homeowners would be able to take a portion of that that tax break with them. The formula is a little bit complicated, but basically, if the um, if you know you're talking about an empty nester couple who are trying to move to a, a more expensive home, they would pay a little bit more than they do now, but probably a lot less than they would under current law. But their kids,
0: right? There's a there's an element about the way that their their children might inherit property, right?
8: Right. So that's the first part. Um, And I think in order to make this uh, uh, more politically palatable, because if you remember from 2018, there was a very similar measure which failed, which is Prop 5. Supporters of this initiative added this additional component, which is um, it would remove the ability of people who inherit homes from their parents or grandparents to keep their low property tax assessments. Uh, unless that home is used as a principal residence. Um, and and even, even then, only on the first $1 million of value. So uh, some li- listeners might recall an LA Times article about this issue for maybe, I think it was last year, which showed that some very wealthy Californians, including Jeff Bridges, the actor, were paying these 1970s era taxes on rental properties. It's the Lebowski loophole. On. It's the Lebowski loophole, exactly. So this would get rid of that. So, so there are sort of these two components. One, which would allow older homeowners and disabled homeowners, uh, to move. And that would be a tax break. And then there's the closing of the quote unquote Lebowski loophole, which would raise taxes. And then the last part to, which was another concession to get firefighters on board, any additional revenue raised by this measure would go towards, uh, wildfire fighting efforts. And so it's got all these different components, but that's, That's the quick summary.
0: Like you said, it's really cobbled together. Uh, So we've got the portability of the tax breaks for the older folks over 55. Then the uh, limit to what their kids can inherit in terms of the tax break. And then you're saying that all this money is going to go towards helping firefighters to try to make it more palatable to voters. So um, a lot to take in there. But Ben, you did a great job breaking it down in in our limited time. Ben Christopher at Cal Matters. We're also speaking with Katie Orr at KQED and Fernando Guerra with Loyola Marymount back in one minute here on Air Talk. I'm Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle. Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle on Air Talk. We've got Fernando Guerra, Ben Christopher and Katie Orr here, a panel breaking down the propositions for the November ballot. And moving on to Proposition 20, rolling back some criminal justice reforms.
2: Katie Orr with KQED, what's going on? So it's interesting. Um, We're talking about uh, ballot measures who have fortuitous timing. I feel like this one might be on the opposite end of that. Because as you mentioned, this really rolls back um, some criminal justice reforms. It would add crimes to the list of violent felonies uh, for which early parole is restricted. It would recategorize certain types of theft and crime as what we call wobblers. And those are um, crimes that can be charged as misdemeanors or felonies. So the implication being that more of them can be charged as felonies. And it would also require um, DNA collection for certain um, kinds of misdemeanors. So it is, um, it's, it's an effort by people who have um, long been trying to roll back uh, Proposition 47, which voters approved in 2014. Um, that That is um, the proposition that allowed Um, certain uh, non-violent, non-serious crimes to be charged as misdemeanors instead of felonies. And it uh, will also roll back parts of Prop 57, which increased uh, parole chances for felons convicted of non-violent crimes, give them and give them more opportunities to um, earn credits, to get out in g- good behavior. That was really backed by uh, Governor Jerry Brown. So again, though, because of the political mood of the country, whereas we're, we're looking at racial um, justice and equity and giving people more chances and re- and criminal justice reform, I can't I, I don't know whether a proposition that's going to crack down even harder on on people convicted of crimes is is really capturing the political mood right now? Yeah, especially
0: when we're looking at the conditions in prison and the safety of people who are incarcerated because of COVID nineteen. It does seem to be uh, a pretty tough uh, uh, issue to tackle from the the law enforcement perspective. Uh, if if that is indeed you know what supporters are, are hoping to do, uh, we are going to talk more on criminal justice later because we have the uh, cash bail proposition coming up. So we're going to move on in the interest of time to Proposition 21, rent control and Ben Christopher with CalMatters. What's going on?
8: Yeah. So this is another rent control measure. Uh, Voters from 2018 remember a very similar measure, but this is uh, it's back now. So under California law, there is a freeze on any new rent control ordinances across the state. That's been the law since 1995. So cities, have not been able to introduce new laws regulating how much landlords can charge their tenants or to expand existing ones uh, for the last 25 years. So if Prop 21 were to pass, it would do away with that ban. So to be clear, this is not a statewide rent control policy. In most places, if it were to pass, nothing would change immediately, but it would allow cities to introduce and apply new rent control measures to homes Uh, But only if they are uh, 15 years uh, old or older. Um, uh, One of the big arguments against rent control is that it discourages developers from building new homes um, because, you know, you're not going to build a home if you can't charge a a certain amount uh, uh, immediately when it goes in the market. Um, And so introducing this 15-year phase-in was added in uh, to address that concern, single-family homes. Owned by landlords with fewer than three properties would also be exempt.
0: So, Fernando Guerra, a second bite at the apple here for Michael Weinstein, who uh, is with the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, sort of a, a maverick political uh, operator in the city of Los Angeles. He's introduced local initiatives limiting development and and, and limiting density in in neighborhoods. Uh, do you see a, a second crack at this rent control initiative in? Uh, 2020 as being any more successful than it has been in the past?
7: Uh, absolutely. I mean, I only because things have changed so drastically with the pandemic, so many people will be having difficulties paying rent. I think it's going to be very appealing. Um, to, you know, right before the pandemic, I would have said, look, rent control, it lost so badly. I mean, I was surprised to the degree that it was. Yeah. Yeah last time. But I think given that uh, the changes were made, they took some uh, um, exceptions that uh, that really the campaign against rent control really focused on last time. This has, I think, a chance of passing again for what Katie, Ben and I have been saying. The political environment has drastically changed and has changed uh, really to the favor of this type of uh, of initiative. It will still, you know, uh, it's going to be close, but I think this has much greater chance than the last time.
0: Katie Orr is up to bat now because we have one of the biggest measures, maybe as big as the split roll in terms of the money that will be spent because so much is at stake for these large companies. And that is Proposition 22. uh, And it has to do with gig economy regulation in California. Katie, what is Proposition 22?
2: Right. So Proposition 22 is the fallout from Assembly Bill 5, which we saw last last year, um, I believe it was, or was it? Yes. last Time year. has no it meaning anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it all runs together. AB 5 was codifying a California Supreme Court ruling that said, that redefined who can be considered an independent contractor in their work. So all these app based companies like Uber and Lyft and Postmates use contractors to um, carry out their services. And the Supreme Court said, no, if you are performing an essential part of that business, for instance, driving for Uber, which can be considered a driving, you know, company, a company that drives people around, you have to be considered uh, An employee and get all the same benefits and protections that employees get. So obviously, this would throw a huge wrench in the way that these companies operate. Uh, when AB five was uh, written by uh, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, it included all kinds of exceptions for different um, employees, uh, different uh, professions, like like hairdressers and barbers, things like that, doctors. Um, it did not include an exception for the gig economy because she did not believe that they, uh, she was saying that gig employees, employers basically want to create a third tier of, of employees uh, outside of either contractor or employee that she didn't think was, you know, acceptable, didn't get written into the uh, legislation. So as they threatened to do from like the get go, these companies have now, put in money and have qualified for a ballot initiative, meaning that voters will get to decide if there should essentially be a third classification for these kinds of workers. As you mentioned, there's going to be a ton of money, um, Uber, Lyft, and uh, DoorDash each put in $90 million to this ballot initiative, like right off the bat. So you can guarantee that come closer to November, your airwaves are going to be swamped with ads for, uh, you know, support Probably supporting <laughs> supporting Prop Twenty Two, um, and, because, and yeah, are we looking at so much at stake.
0: Any kind of organized opposition, Katie? Sorry to to cut you off there. I, I'm just curious because this is such a huge tidal wave of money. Um, what what's the organized opposition?
2: Yeah, I mean the California Labor Federation is um, really coming out strong against this because you can imagine that if these uh, workers are all in. in considered employees, there's a huge potential for them to become unionized employees, which the California Labor Federation would uh, would obviously like. Um, Vice President Joe Biden is opposed to it, Senators Kamala Harris, Senator Elizabeth Warren, because again, it's seen as uh, supporters, or I'm sorry, opponents of this measure are painting it as corporations trying to take advantage of workers, uh, you know, which is something, again, that really kind of goes along with the mood of the country right now. Supporters of the measure say, hey, we're trying to provide some kind of flexibility. We'll give them some kinds of protections. But This is 2020 and we need a new way of classifying workers. The old ways don't apply anymore.
0: You know, I saw this issue play out in uh, a congressional race of all things, even though, you know, Congress members don't make state policy. But in the 25th District in uh, North L.A. County and, and Eastern Ventura County, Mike Garcia won that seat in the special election in part by just hammering home the impact of what he said was AB5 on on the economy and um, the issues that it presented to to workers and to businesses. So it's just such a hot button issue. I want to get Fernando Guerra's take on it, but we have to take a very quick break. We'll be back in one second with our panel, Katie Orr with KQED, Ben Christopher with Cal Matters, and Fernando Guerra at Loyola Marymount University. Back in one minute, Libby Denkman in for Larry. Hey, it's Libby Denkman back with you on AirTalk, and we're talking about Proposition 22 now, the gig economy regulation proposition, and it's looking at whether to exempt some app-based drivers from a law called AB5, which makes, you know, it would make them independent contractors instead of employees so companies don't have to pay the same standard wages and abide by hourly restrictions, but it would also have an earnings floor for them and then the stipend to purchase health insurance, some other minimum benefits. Fernanda Guerra, a really quick reaction to you on the impact of AB 5 and what voters will be looking at here.
7: Sure. You're going to hear a lot about this. Proposition 22 will probably spend the most money, followed by Proposition 15, as we earlier discussed. Um, the entire Democratic establishment, all labor groups, are against this proposition. However, none of them are really focused on it as their number one. they got so many other things on the issue. So they will be outspent. I think they will be outmaneuvered politically. It just depends on the role of the citizens or voters come November. There is an advantage that we are all, because the delivery services in this pandemic era are, are kind of more and more familiar with what is happening with these potential employees, current contractors. So there, there will be a lot of education or even miseducation for the next couple of months regarding this proposition.
0: Yeah, and we'll be covering it closely. I know Airtalk and Larry have really been uh, diving deep on this issue of AB5 and its impact. Uh, Moving on to a a really uh, another deja vu proposition. Ben, we're looking at another kidney dialysis proposition, number 23. If we can go through this one uh, pretty swiftly. It's tough for people to wrap their brains around... Regulation of kidney dialysis—if they're not medical professionals, right?
8: Yeah, not really a hot button issue for most people. No. Um, but as as you said, this measure would require clinics that provide dialysis to have at least one physician on site at all times, and and also to report patient infection data to California health officials. So it sounds a little technical. You might wonder why are voters being asked to weigh on this again, because there was this ballot measure in twenty eighteen. The background here is that this is a ma- part of a massive longstanding labor fight. So there are two companies that own and operate about 70 percent of all for-profit dialysis clinics in the state. And for years, the SEIU UHW, which is a union that represents healthcare workers, has been trying to unionize dialysis workers in California. And so over the last few years, the union sponsored legislation to slap these clinics with tougher regulation. They sponsored the 2018 measure that sort of capped their profits. It failed. Um, the union, I mean, they say that this is all about making sure that, that these clinics are operated safely and the profit doesn't come before patient care. But you also kind of have to see this as part of this context is applying pressure uh, you know, from the union to bring these clinics to the bargaining table. And in fact, 2018, Prop 8, the dialysis measure, it did fail, but only after the two companies spent uh, together uh, one in, uh, $111 million, which is record breaking. So, you know, even though the union lost that one. They still really hit the companies in their bottom line. And so I I think it's likely we're going to see a a big battle again and probably a whole lot of money spent.
0: Just a massive amount of spending on that one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Proposition 24, another one that uh, I think people have difficulty. It's a dense one. It has to do with consumer privacy rules. Katie, uh, can you get through it in two minutes?
2: Sure. Um (laughs) Sure. Again, This is another one, like Ben was just speaking about, that we saw or we saw a version of in 2018. Uh, The California Consumer Privacy Act was headed to the 2018 ballot. Um, The legislature actually pulled it off the ballot, which they can now do, and um, negotiated with both sides and passed legislation. um, So that so the the law is essentially in in place gives um, California some tough data privacy protections. This proposition basically seeks to expand on what is already there. Um, Alistair McTaggart, who's a San Francisco-based real estate developer, he filed this ballot initiative. He was a proponent of the 2018 measure, which he called a great baseline. Um, But he said that if you pass it on the ballot instead of just legislatively, it can't be amended without uh, the approval of voters. So kind of enshrining these privacy protection laws, um, more, more toughly than if the legislature has a change of heart and can just vote to, to amend a a certain bill or, or, or change it uh, that way. So it's kind of dense because it, but it really is just modifying the 2018 law that is currently in place, making it, um, stronger.
0: Which is already, you know, the strictest in the country and and, uh, resulting in a lot of ripple effects for the tech industry. So that's going to be, I think, closely watched by companies that will have to do increased notification, increased permissions, everything like that. Um, Just the last one, you guys, we got to the end here, but it's a big one. Proposition 25, will California eliminate the cash bail system? Ben Christopher, what is on the table here?
8: Yeah, so this is the referendum on on California's ban on cash bail. So uh, in 2018, the state legislature, with the backing of the California Supreme Court Justice um, Tani Tani Kantil-Sakayue, passed a a bill to ban the use of bail in California, uh, basically scrapping cash bail with a system— um, in which judges can decide whether someone is free to go before trial or if they're deemed to be sufficiently dangerous uh, to others or themselves just based on sort of a risk assessment. Um, so it, basically it, the, the law took money out of the equation. As soon as that law passed the California bail bond industry, um, which are the people who loan money to people who want to make bail but don't have the money on hand – they mounted this referendum campaign. So, if you vote yes on Prop 25, you would be voting to get rid of cash bail and replacing it with this risk assessment system. And if you vote no, you're saying that the law was a bad idea and we should uh, keep keep cash bail.
0: Fernando Guerra, uh, your take on this Proposition 25?
7: Yeah, it's uh, again. Let let me. Uh, it uh, my comment here applies to all these propositions. Let's be clear. We call these citizen initiatives, but only the wealthy, like McTaggart or Weinstein or interest groups like the bail companies here or app companies or labor have the money to place an initiative on the ballot. This is because we're unable to solve a major issue through the legislature or the marketplace or both, and we ask voters to decide this. This is not the way it should be, but this is how the initiative process has been distorted. And many of these are classic examples of things that should not be before voters who are not as informed as the legislature or the interest groups. But nonetheless, this is the system that we have. And these are the decisions that we have to make.
0: Katie or do you have any reaction, uh, not just to Proposition 25, but to kind of the general slate of what voters will be facing in November 12. Very important, but also
2: very dense propositions. Right. I mean, I think we've been saying it this whole show that the political mood of the country is really going, could potentially really influence uh, what makes it and what doesn't in November. Uh, The people are, you know, we've seen measures that like, for instance, affirmative action that hasn't, you know, haven't moved forward in years, suddenly having new life and, you know, having a good shot at actually making it into policy. So I think it'll be really interesting as we, we well know, right. I mean, November to maybe political people doesn't seem that far away, but it is a lifetime away in our daily news cycle. So um, who knows what will happen, but given, assuming the political mood stands, I think a lot of these um, measures could really stand a, a good chance. Ben Christopher, final word here in 30 seconds.
8: Yeah, I mean, all I would say is that there's a lot of deja vu, as you pointed out, a lot of rehashing of old issues. And I think, you know, there's just a lot of anticipation among the interest groups of a big turnout election in 2020. And so they think this is the moment.
0: Brace yourselves for the mailers, everybody, and the ads and the pop-ups and everything else that you will be seeing in the next three months. That was Ben Christopher with Cal Matters, Katie Orr from KQED, and Fernando Guerra with the Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. I'm Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle this week while he is on vacation. Stick around. Fresh air is next. And Terry is going back to her interview with the late civil rights icon and Congressman John Lewis, who died on Friday. Thanks again for listening today. I'll be back tomorrow. Have a great afternoon.